Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Glad that you are here. Welcome if you are in Center Court East, Center Court West, whether it's the Woodlands, whether you're worshiping online. Uh, and if you are worshiping online, our hope is that you will get plugged in to one of the campuses or if you live in the area. And let's get you in a grow group where you can have some friends where you're praying together and studying the word together and, and where some people know your name and you know their names as well. If you're not in the area, I hope you'll get plugged into a group somewhere led by a good Bible-believing church wherever you are. So... Yeah, praise the Lord for all the things that have been happening this year. It's been a good year, and and I'm very grateful. Many of those things could not happen without two things, uh, one being your generosity. So thank you, as always, for that. As a matter of fact, you're going to get a letter that just, I think, got mailed out last week, um, just reminding you of year-end giving. uh, that, That tends to be a time of year that a lot of people remember, you know, we need to be generous. And I would just invite you to please remember FaithBridge when you're thinking about year-end generosity. And the other thing that we couldn't be doing all of these things without is your servanthood. We have hundreds, well, really thousands now. And if you weren't rolling up your sleeves and helping all of these things to happen, they couldn't be happening. Speaking of one of those things that takes a lot of servers, um, I mentioned last week how big we do Christmas, and that's coming up. So I want to invite you to serve at Christmas time. We'll tell you more of those possibilities after the sermon. But I don't want to take any more of Ben's time. Ben Stewart is here to bring us another installment uh, in this series and a great installment it is. So let's welcome Ben Stewart as he comes to bring God's word to us now. All right. Well, howdy. howdy. Good to see you guys. Merry Christmas. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to read to you a couple verses uh, beginning in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, so if you don't have a Bible, I think people are passing some out, or you can just listen, because uh, I want to read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, a couple verses starting in verse 1. We'll pray uh, and then jump in together. So 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we've urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. 
I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord, I want to thank you that our message, first and foremost, is one of grace, that in the midst of our need and our poverty, the kindness of God extended to us, that Christ came to take on the difficulties of our lives, not just to commiserate with us, but to raise us to a new life, a new family, a new kingdom, a new future in his house. And so thank you that our message is one of grace. And thank you that it's a grace that has brought into our hearts an inexpressible joy. And I pray, Father, the joy of knowing that we belong to you, that Christmas is is a declaration of love, that we are never alone in the universe. I, I pray that the joy that comes from that would change the way we think and the way we live and the way we treat others. And so, Lord, I pray for your gospel to take root in our hearts and then change our lives. And I I pray to that end that that would happen even right now, in this moment. We would be different as a result of this encounter with your word. And I can't create that. And so I want to invite you guys, if you would, to take a minute and ask him that and say, Lord, please help me. Please teach me something today. Uh, And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last year I was in a conversation with some guys from Minnesota and as we were talking and they found out I was from Texas, they said, man, I just don't know how you can live Uh, with the weather down there in Texas. How can you handle that heat, you know? And I remember they said that to me and I was like, you're commenting on my weather and you live in Minnesota? I was like, people die from freezing to death on their way to work where you live. And the crazy thing is, I said that to them because I had heard that once. And their response was, Oh, yeah, man. And one of them was like, dude, there was one time I was driving and my car froze and uh, I realized we're all going to die. And so I grabbed my family and we had to run to a farmhouse for shelter. And then they started to explain to me, but it's okay now. We've just learned if you keep a candle in your car, it's sufficient heat to keep you alive. And they're telling me this story and I'm like, do you even hear yourselves? (laughs) Like, do you even hear what you're saying? I was like, the fuel in your vehicle froze while you were driving. It was that cold. And you were about to die. And if you hadn't have brought a candle, you wouldn't have made it. Think about that. If you're like, oh, I forgot the matches. Well, tell my wife I love her. You know, like, that's it? I'm like, that's insane. And I remember as I said that to them, they were all just looking at me. And then they went, huh, yeah, I guess we never thought about that. I was like, yeah, that's nuts. But they had become so used to it. That was just the atmosphere they lived in. Yeah, bring a candle or else you die. Like, that was their thing. And it was influencing the way they live and the way they move and the way they interact with the world, but they had just become so accustomed to it because it was just in the air they breathe. And so it took someone pointing it out to them. This is how your climate is affecting you that made them pause and consider it. How interesting is that? Now, why do I bring that up? 
Because we started last week and we're doing it this week. As we talk about this Advent season, thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We said, let's just pause and reflect. That's what the Advent season is for. And I said, I want to reflect on not just our cause, the gospel of Jesus, but on our culture, how, how the social climate around us has affected the way we live and the decisions we make. And last week we talked about technology, that the advent of all kinds of new technologies over the last 10 years has radically changed how we interact with God, interact with one another, and even see ourselves. It's changed us. And so we got that information to help inform us how do we want to live. And so this morning I want to talk about a different part of our atmosphere, the climate around us, and to say this is how it's affecting us, and we get to, with that information, now make informed decisions of how we want to live. And what I want to talk about this morning is not uh, technology, I want to talk about money. I want to talk about money. Which as soon as I say that, I, I know what happens in, in people. They usually go, oh, here we go, just kind of turn off, like the pastor hit us up for money, everyone get ready to feel guilty, here comes a wave of shame. I just want to tell you, this is not a guilt trip. My goal is not to make anybody feel bad. That's not what this is. If anything, I didn't even want to talk about this because I knew it would do that. And it's not very fun as a speaker to watch everybody go, I resent you or I'm disinterested. Like that's not a real like fun thing to do up front. And I was like, man, especially now, God, with like um, the financial stress that's very real right now for a lot of people and, and the climate of our culture, there's a lot of fear and that fear breeds a cynicism when someone's talking about stuff like this. And they're like, Lord, I just know you're asking me to wade into a lot of fear, a lot of cynicism. I don't want to wade into that. I don't want to do this. And as I was thinking that, I read this passage in 2 Corinthians, and it's what got me to come around this, because Paul was talking to the Corinthians about the Philippians. And he's telling the Corinthians the story about the Philippians. And what he said about the Philippians is that I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given to these people, that God's grace was poured out on these people. How, Paul? And he says, because in a severe test of affliction, he says they were in a very difficult crisis. And while they were in the midst of that severe affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty met together. He said they were in the midst of very difficult circumstances, and in those difficult circumstances, they were extremely poor. And their extreme poverty came crashing into their overwhelming joy, that the people of God who know the grace of God had an overwhelming joy inside that met up with the very real reality of their poverty outside. But what happened when those collided? Not a loss of joy, not a giving up hope of, not a, I can't be a part of what God's doing. He says, when those two things came slamming together, what overflowed was a wealth of generosity. He said, when the people of God got in the midst of affliction, the midst of uncertainty, the midst of poverty, the joy in their hearts overflowed into generosity to the world. And it not only helped people in need, it inspired the Corinthians to do the same. And so as I looked at that, I thought, you know what we have an opportunity to do here is not make people feel bad. I don't want to do that. Not kind of guilt trip people. But what we have here is you see that people who have joy because of the gospel can be generous and that generosity makes the world a better place. And as I thought about that, I thought that's what our world needs right now. There's so much cynicism in the world, so much fear and uncertainty in the world that what a lot of us do is batten down the hatches, silo up, and I just got to take care of me and mine, and I don't care what happens to you. That's the world we live in. But the gospel is showing us the world needs a hopeful, joyful people who will live differently. Because people in the midst of poverty, in the midst of uncertainty that live with generosity, they're culture shapers. And I want that for us. It's amazing the difference that can be made when we enter into this kind of world with hope and with joy. 
So I read an article this morning entitled, Why the World Would Be a Better Place If Everyone Went to Texas A&M. And I thought, I don't even need to read the article. Like, that's just a statement of fact. Like, you don't need arguments as to why. You just say, the world would be better if everyone went to Texas A&M. And I thought everyone would go, oh, of course. Like, everyone knows that. But apparently not everyone knows that. And so this article was unpacking why that's true. And what they did in this article is they showed a picture. And I want to show the picture if we got it. It's a picture of these college students. Uh, There they are, college students. And uh, I don't know how that picture strikes you. When I first looked at it, it's uh, particularly underwhelming. It's just a bunch of students standing in a line. Who cares? But in this article underneath it uh, was uh, a blog written by a professor in the business school at Texas A&M. And he said this. He says, the picture looks innocuous enough. Students are often in line waiting to get into an exam or a class, waiting for tickets to a football game, waiting for a bus. He says, but this line was different. Without my knowledge, my teaching assistant emailed my class and told them that they, they uh, and told them she would have a get well card for my wife, who's been challenged with heart issues over the last few months. What you see in that snapshot is the 30 minute long line that ensued. He says, these students are currently in my class, except for one or two, I've only known them for four weeks. I'm still learning their names and their faces. They've never met my wife. I have not mentored them or invested in them. In fact, I haven't even given them an exam yet. He says, what you see is an expression of honor. And honor freely given is a powerful antidote to cynicism. And then he begins to talk about his experience as a teacher of ethics in the business school. And this is what he said. I teach professional skepticism to young auditors, like the ones you see in this line. He said, and it's so easy for me to let skepticism devolve into cynicism. But the experiences in my life like this, since coming to Texas A&M, have changed me for the better. And then he goes on to list the changes they've made. And he says, it's these voluntary expressions of honor, my TA arranging a card, my students standing in line for half an hour to encourage my wife they haven't met. He says, that kind of generosity in the midst of my cynicism, it's made it impossible for me to just careen into being a grumpy old professor. And he says, I was charging headlong into where everyone else in the world is going. Cynicism, everyone's in it for themselves. He says, and then people who owed me nothing did something generous for my wife. He said, it wasn't just an uplifting card to my wife. It changed me. It changed the way I see the world. It changed the way I interact with the world. That generosity melts cynicism and fear and the world needs a whole lot more of that. It's, it's a wonderful life, right? Most of us have seen that, right? It's a wonderful life. Your silence scares me. You're like, uh, what? It's a wonderful life, right? You know, the whole, I'm going to lasso the moon, marry, right? The, that guy, you remember that? What's the story of it's a wonderful life? In the midst of difficulty, a guy loses hope, loses joy, joins the world in its selfish cynicism, and then says what? This whole world is broken. This whole place is broken. What am I going to do? Go for mine and die. That's it. And then God intervenes and says, let me show you the result of a selfish world like that. And you get Pottersville where the whole world loses. And he calls the people of God to a different way in the midst of obvious fear, uncertainty, and panic and cynicism in the world. Let the people of God carve a different path. 
Because as we live with generosity, it melts cynicism and the world becomes a better place. So that's why I'm talking about money, not to make you feel bad, but to open up to us a possibility of being world-shaping, culture-changing, climate-adjusting people. So what I want to do in the rest of our time we have left is I just want to do three things. One, I want to look at the world as it is today. Just give us information for informed decisions. Where is the money in the world today? Where's the money? What's going on in the world? I just want to look at the planet. Where are we today? And then I want to look at what could be. And then I want to look at how we get from there to here. So that's what we're doing. So number one, the world as it is. What's going on in the world? Credit Suisse Research Institute publishes a global wealth report annually, and it provides the most comprehensive, up-to-date information on global household wealth. And so it's the best measurement we have about where money is in the world today. And so they break it down by global population, global wealth, and this is what they found out, that the richest 1% of the world's population own 48% of global wealth. So there it is on the left, global population, the top 1% own 48% of all wealth on the planet right now. That's the world we live in right now. There's about 72 million people in that 1%, and they own 48% of all the wealth in the world. The bottom half of the global population, that's 3.5 billion people, own less than 1% of the total wealth in the world. So Half of the people alive on the planet today, 3.5 billion people, own less than 1% of the wealth on the planet. That half, incidentally, also has no electricity in their homes. That was new to me. That, that's the globe we live on. I don't know what you think the planet's like today. What I've learned is half the people alive today don't live with electricity in their homes. I don't know that I've gone a full day like that. They live their whole life like that. That's the world we're on, the globe we're on this morning. So where does this leave us? That means 49% of the population of the planet owns 51% of the wealth. That's a little obvious, but there they are. 49% owns 51%. That's the whole breakdown. Now, the natural question when you see a picture like that is, where do I land, right? And for me, who teaches college students, I remember when I showed this to them, my assumption for most of them is they're like, Ben, I think I'm safely in that bottom half. They're like, Ben, I've got (laughs) no money to love. So, uh, you know, Tell people to give us money. So that was the idea. But I looked into this. Okay, where, where are people? Where do we land? If we cashed you out, settled your debts, sold your things, and you have $3,650 in the bank. So if you have $3,650 to your name, $3,650, you're in the top 50%. Okay? So if you own a little less than $4,000 in your life, you're in the top half. Right? So I would say most all of us in here are, are in the top 50% on the planet right now. Congratulations. If you own $77,000, so if you have $77,000, now not all of us in here do, but maybe a lot of you do, $77,000, you're in the top 10% of people in the world, top 10%. Now to be in the top 1%, you got to have a lot more than that. Top 1% has a little bit less than $800,000. So there's some of us in the top 1%, $800,000. 77,000 gets you in the top 10%. So what does that mean? I would say most of us in this area are safely in the top 50% on the planet today. And many of us are creeping up into the top 10% on the planet right now. And so I think that surprised some people, surprised me, that we are in many ways much wealthier than, than we think. So what's the giving trends on the planet? Who's giving away money? Again, let me stress now, this is not a guilt trip. This is just information about the planet, okay? 
Charities Aid Foundation, not a Christian organization, Charities Aid Foundation over the last five years does their World Giving Index. They track generosity on the planet. They've done over the last five years using Gallup poll numbers, very reliable numbers on the planet. They do interviews in over 160 nations. And as they're interviewing people from 160 nations on the planet, they're like, okay, now we know where the money is. Who's giving away money? Who are the generous people on the planet? Where are they? And so in their 2014 report, when they asked the question, did you give money last month? They asked this across 160 nations. They didn't ask how much money. They didn't ask to what charitable organization. They just said, have you given charitably in the last 30 days? 27% of the people on the planet said yes. So when people all over the globe were asked, did you give to someone in need? Did you give generously? Over the last month, 27% of the people, so you know, roughly one in four said, yes, I did. One out of every four people on the planet said, yes, I gave something uh, in the last month. In the United States, that was 68%, 68%. So we should all feel good about that. Like America's way more generous than the, you know, the rest of the world if you average it out. So go America, 68%. That puts us at ninth place on their generosity index with giving, ninth place. So we're in the top 10. We're not at the top. We're number nine, but we're in the top 10. And some people would look at that and go, well, yeah, America's in the top 10. It's because we're rich, right? It's like the richest planet on the globe or something. Like, of course we give more, but that's not really the case. Out of the G20 nations... The, 20, the wealthiest 20 nations, only five of them make the top 20 on the giving index. Right? So the vast majority of the wealthiest nations on the planet don't give generously. Right? Uh, so it's not just that America has money. Uh, most countries that have money don't give generously. There's something unique about us that you should feel good about, right? We give away money. Look at us. Uh, and so that's that. And when you come to helping strangers and whatever, we're doing real good. There's other trends on here, and I won't go deep into this one I did with college students, but an interesting thing is all their charts that they chart are going up except one. Giving is going down in one demographic in America, and that downward trend is among millennials, those 30s and under. And some people look at that and go, well, of course it's smaller than older generations because older people have money. College kids don't have any money. Like they're it's like scrounging for biscuits and they don't have nothing. So of course they give less. You go, no, it's just when you look at millennials over the last five years, their trend of giving monetarily has gone down, right? It's a little sobering uh, for our young people because I think millennials see themselves as generous. And they are generous in some ways, just not with their money. So it's like, hey, wake up call. You're uh, richer than you think and less generous uh, than you think. Now, what about the church? The people of Jesus, the people of God on the planet, how's the church doing? Well, Christianity Today posted an article in 2013 uh, about tithers, people who give 10% or more of their income. I'm not gonna get into the whole conversation of should you or should you not, that whole thing. 10% is often a number the church comes around of giving 10% or more of your income away charitably. And there's some biblical foundations for that and that sort of stuff. I'm not gonna get into that the whole thing, but 10%, that's the thing. They asked how many people in a church give 10% or more of their income away charitably. And when that question was asked in America, how many, they found that in a congregation like this, anywhere between 10% and 25% give uh, uh, tithe. So when you walk into the church today, maybe one out of every 10, up to one out of every four of us give 10% or more. That's the number, okay? So anywhere between 10% and 25% give. On average, Christians in America, self-proclaimed Christians in America, give 2.5% of their income away. So 10%, the average American gives, Christian gives away 2.5% of their income or less. 
Now, as I say that, that, that sounds lower. And, and I know for some people, maybe that aren't Christians or maybe cynical about Christianity, you might be tempted to go, see, you Christians are so fake, man. Like, y'all talk about being generous and how you give to people. The average Christian gives 2.5% away. Y'all aren't very generous at all. That's horrible. Well, let me just say, before you give your speech, non-Christians in America give like way less, like way less than Christians, okay? Uh, way less like the numbers of them that give money, less than 5% of non-Christians give away 10% of their income or more. 80% of non-Christians in America give away less than 2%. So Christians in America are way more generous than non-Christians in America. So that's great, right? So you're like, America's generous. The church in America's generous to a degree, 2.5% of their income to give away. Wonderful. Okay, that's where we are. But I want to stop for a minute and turn the corner and go, let's look at the world as it could be. This is the world as it is. The vast majority have less than 1% of the wealth. Uh, uh, what's going on with what could be? Well, um, Relevant Magazine in 2013 put out an article based on numbers from generouschurch.com where they asked the question, if, if self-identified Christians in America gave 10% of their income to charity, that was how they found, gener- like how do you define generosity? They said generosity is 10% or more. If, if American self-identified Christians, only America, just Christians, said I'm gonna give 10% of my income away to charity, what difference would that make in the world? That was the question they were coming after. And so when they did their numbers, they said if American Christians gave away 10%, there would be an additional $165 billion that the people of Jesus could distribute on the planet. And so the natural question is, what can you do with $165 billion? A lot. So (laughs) what are some things they came up with? Well, they came up with, and we put a chart of it up there, 15 billion of it could solve the water's water and sanitation issues where much of the planet doesn't have safe drinking water. Uh, $12 billion could solve the illiteracy problem in five years. You go, where? Yeah, on that uh, globe, <clears throat> the one we live on. Uh, $25 billion over the course of five years would solve uh, all deaths from hunger and preventative disease. Uh, $1 billion would fund all overseas missionaries. That would leave, if you're doing the math, somewhere between 100 and 110 billion for other ministry endeavors we feel like doing. So it's interesting to look at that and go, if just American Christians decided we're gonna give 10% or more, be generous, the world could be really different than it is now. And that's just something we gotta sit in and look at. I mean, like the world could be a really different place. And here's what's crazy. Not just could the world be better, we could be better. It's weird, I don't have time to go into all this, but a professor at Notre Dame named Christian Smith wrote a book called The Paradox of Generosity. And he found something interesting. He was studying generous people, which he defined as people who give 10% or more. He was studying generous people, and he found that people who are generous, it actually creates well-being in their life. See, some people think, well, you're well off, and so you're more generous. He goes, it actually works the other way around as they've tracked people. Generous people, as they went through all these different measurements, externally, internally, he found that by every measure, generous people have better numbers as it relates to happiness, bodily health, a sense of purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and personal growth. He said at every internal and external factor, generous people performed better in life, so much so that they found that in older Americans, generous older Americans over a seven-year period, they were 30% less likely to die. They said, it's a better predictor of death in old people than like what medicine they're taking. Isn't that weird? 
Like they're studying old people and the generous ones are living longer by a significant percentage than the non-generous ones. That's crazy. So not only will it make you feel better and make the world better, it will literally keep you alive more than your aspirin or whatever else you're working on, right? It's crazy. And so it's interesting to look at that and go, okay, the world could be really something else. Why don't we do it? If the world could be better and we could be better, why aren't we more generous? What's going on with that? And I want to talk about that. If that's a beautiful picture, how do we get there? Like, how do we arrive there? Well, let me just look at a couple things. When Jesus came on the scene, Jesus showed up, and his message over and over was, I'm building a new kingdom. A kingdom's a system of rule, a way of living. He says, when I come, I'm gathering a group of people, and we live different. We have a different code of conduct, a different mission, purpose, and way we live than anybody else. I'm building a kingdom. I want you to come with me. And in Matthew chapter 6, he starts unpacking his kingdom priorities. The people of Jesus live by my priorities, and here they are in the world. And in Matthew 6, 19, he tells us something to stop doing. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He says, the people in my kingdom aren't trying to hoard up all this stuff for themselves. Now, I know I read that, and some of us go, Ben, wait a minute. Like, isn't the Bible, like, doesn't it say, like, in Proverbs, things about saving? Like, are you saying Jesus saying don't save? Like, don't store up things for yourself like, that'll rust or destroy? He's like, what about saving? Like, aren't we supposed to save with our family? Isn't it godly or a right to save up money for our family? Yes, the Bible's pro-saving. And you go, well, what about enjoying our money? Shouldn't we be able to, like, have a nice meal with our wife, go on a vacation with our kids? Shouldn't we be able to enjoy our money? Are you saying Christians just have to be poor because Jesus was poor? So now I got to be poor. Is that what you're saying? You're trying to oppress me, Ben? No. <laughs> the Bible talks about it in 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Timothy 6, enjoying your money. So should a Christian save money? Yes. Should you enjoy your money? Yes. The Bible's not anti-saving. The Bible's not anti-enjoying. The Bible's anti-hoarding. That's why he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, accumulating clothes, accumulating things that are just for your own ego or sense of worth. He says, that's not what we're about. So yeah, you enjoy the life God's given you. You enjoy the money he's given you. Yeah. But as he goes to talk about this, he gets into the heart issue of why is the world here and not there? He says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why isn't the world what it could be? He says, it's not because we're disorganized. That's a problem. It's not because of warlords in Africa, though they're a problem. It's not because of these external problems. He says the real issue of why we are not living more generously, even though we know it'll make us better and make the world better, he says it's a heart issue. And then he points to this principle, where the heart is, where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what he means by that is your money's going to follow your mission. It is. Money follows mission. If I want to know what you're about, I just see where the money goes. Because money follows mission. I don't need to hear a sermon, anything like that. I see where your money goes, and it shows me what you value. And so he says, first and foremost, we got to talk about what your heart beat for, what your heart loves. Because what your heart loves, your money's going to follow. It is. I see it all the time working with college students when I see them fall in love, right? I mean, when you see a young man go from playing video games, hanging with his dudes, to meeting a girl, and then to falling in love with that girl, and then taking that big step of, and I want to be with her for always, that's a big step for a guy. They're dorking around with their friends, having fun, doing whatever, but when they go, I met the one, that's a big switch where they go, wait a minute, if I'm going to commit my life to this girl forever, that means 
Sorry, ladies, no other woman can have me. I'm just, I'm off the market. You can't have me, ladies. I'm just being committed to this one, which I know they probably couldn't get most, a lot of these other ladies, but that's how a guy thinks. They're like, am I really gonna deprive all these women? I think I am, because I'm just gonna commit to one. And they make that decision in their head. It's a big decision for a guy. And they're like, okay, I'm doing it. And they commit to this girl. I wanna be with her forever. When they cross that threshold in their mind, what's the first thing they do? They get online and they start researching diamond rings. And we all, you know, did it. And they, sit, and they start looking up cut, cost, clarity, and they realize all the prices of a diamond ring these days. And they go, son. Because they realize it's more money than they've ever physically seen, right? <laughs> but let me tell you what I never see happen. I never see them go, oh, well, marry another. <laughs> and go back to playing video games. They get clarity on what they want they'll figure out how to fund it, right? When they get a clear vision of what they want, they're gonna sell blood. <laughs> they're gonna mow lawns. They're gonna paint houses. They're gonna do all kinds of other nanny and kids while mowing. They're gonna do whatever to get that money because the money's gonna flow to their mission. That's where their heart is. That's where the money's going. That's where they go, right? And it's the same with all of us. So it's not a question of, it's interesting as they study generosity in America, you'd think, well, people who have more money are more generous. That's not the case. Generosity in America isn't dependent on how much money you have coming in. And it isn't even really dependent on circumstances. It's interesting. Right now, you know, uh, we give, what, 2.5% of our income away. Uh, and you go, well, these are trying economic times. During the Great Depression, they gave away 3.3%. During the Great Depression, they gave a higher percentage. So it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about what's in your heart. What do you want? And so for me, as I've been studying this, oh, it's been challenging to me because you start thinking about it and going, okay, Ben, what do you want? Like when you picture your life in the future, because we all do. I mean, you may not know how you're going to get from here to there, but we all have a vision of our life in the future, right? For young people, it's a vision of you married. For older ones, it's a vision of you with the grandkids or whatever it is. We have a vision of ourselves. I just want to ask you, what's the vision? What's in it? When you most naturally visualize yourself, not, not, not try to manipulate it because you're at church, well, I guess it's you know, filled with the serving at the church. No, like uh, when you just naturally visualize your future, what's in it? Is it a big house? Is it a, a country club membership and, and several golf courses, different key cars that get you into special VIP places? Is it that kind of, is that what you see? Or do you look and you go, man, I can't wait to see when I get older how many hungry children get fed because I exist? When you most naturally picture your future, do you go, man, if the Lord allows, I can't wait to see how many broken people get healed because I lived. And when you have a vision for your family, do you go, kids, can you imagine what might be how many people could go from death to life because they heard the life-saving message of Jesus Christ because our family exists? Is that part of your future? And some of us hear that and you go, well, Ben, why do you got to put that at odds with having a house or golf membership? Like, what's your problem with golf? Like, golf's not a sin. Why are you hating on golf? I'm not hating golf. Can you have a big house and play golf and be generous? Yes. Can you be successful financially and be generous? Yes. I know people, I know people here that are successful people. I know some of you without selling out your family and working 90 hours a week and like never coming home and don't even know your kids. Like what's that kid's name? That's your son. Like without doing that, with you just living a normal work life, you're going to be successful. You're going to make money. You're going to be like, I did it again. Where's all this money coming from? And there's some of you that are, that are just going to do that. 
And you're going to have nice things. And you're going to have a vacation house. You're going to have golf commercial. You're going to have those things. And you know what? There's no shame in that. You should feel great about that. There's nothing wrong with that. You can have those things and be a generous person. The point I'm making is there will be moments in our life where those come into conflict. They will for all of us. There will be moments where we hit rough seas. And the question is, what goes overboard? When the ship's taken on water, what do you cut financially? You go, oh, we can quit supporting that missionary. He was never that good anyway. Cut the rope, you know, uh, get him out of there, right? Or do you cut some vacation plans or your clothing budget? Because, because the money's gonna flow with your, with your mission. What, what do you see? What's the vision? You got a mission for your life. The money's gonna flow there. And we're gonna know what your mission is when we see where the money goes. And my question is, these things don't have to come into conflict, but when they do, we're gonna learn what your mission is because we watch where the money goes. And I want you to be a generous person for the sake of the world and for the sake of you, right? I want that for us. Your heart's affection is gonna determine your life's direction and your money's direction. Where does it go? Because Jesus said it, you can't serve two masters. So you're either gonna love the one, hate the other, to be devoted to one, despise the other. So you can't love God and money. You go, what does he mean by that? You don't serve money by meeting money's needs. You don't come to money and go, money, can I get you anything? You go, what does he mean by serve money? He means I look to it to be my source. That's what John Piper said. That when you would go to a God in the ancient world, you went to a God to be your source to meet your needs. And we still do it today. And he says, you're gonna go to one of two places. You're gonna go to money to be your source of affirmation, acceptance, value, success. He said, or you're gonna go to God for that. And Jesus' challenge in the sermon was for the people of Jesus, our kingdom lives by different rules. We're generous people. We leverage our lives for the poor. And so we're gonna serve God, not money, right? And so when we get a clear vision of our future, it's about leveraging our lives for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others. That's the world, a generosity that melts cynicism on the planet, right? That's us. Now, some of us hear that, and, and I would guess in a place like this, you, we get nervous. You just go, Ben, uh, like you don't know what's going to go on in my life. Well, here's the fascinating thing about that. As his sermon continues in Matthew 6, he says, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body, what you'll put on. And I love that about Jesus' sermon. We tend to break it into two pieces, his money sermon and his anxiety sermon. And we tend to break it that way. Give a sermon on money, give a sermon on anxiety. What's interesting about Jesus, he's given the sermon on money. And he says, you're either gonna serve money or serve God. And if you serve God, we're gonna be generous people, not hoarding, but giving out to the world for the good of others and ultimately for the good of you. We're gonna be generous people, leveraging our, ourselves financially for the glory of God on this planet. He's talking about that. And Jesus anticipates while he's talking about it, the people in the crowd start getting nervous. They're sitting there going, oh, he's going to get our money. How are we going to feed the kids? How are we going to eat? We're going to starve. We're going to be naked and cold in a gutter and go, why, God, you hate me and then die. He's like, we're so scared. And so Jesus is like, we're going to leverage our money. We're going to give it away to the poor. Now let me talk about anxiety. He says, and I want you not to worry about what you're going to eat. I don't want you to worry about your clothes. I don't want you to worry about what you're going to wear. And he tells them at the sermon, he says, the Gentiles do that. The nations worry about that. He says, your father in heaven knows what you need. So seek first his kingdom and he'll add these things to you. That's what I love about it. He says, you pursue my kingdom and I take the responsibility to provide for you. Isn't that great? He says, you pursue my kingdom and I take the responsibility to provide for you. So what do we need to do? I think, we, I think many of us have to repent of selfishness. I did as I studied this. 
repent of a selfish heart, then get a strategy. I got a vision of I'm going to be a generous person. Now I just got to figure out the strategy of how I'm going to do it. And as soon as you get on board that, then you get to rest because your God promises to take care of you. He says, you seek my kingdom. I'll take care of you. How do all the mechanics of that work? I don't really know, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but let me tell you something. When we pursue the priority of God, we get the provisions of God. We do. There's mystery to it, but we do. I know for me, when I took over as director of Breakaway Ministries in College Station, it was an incredible ministry, and there are a lot of students already coming. Unbelievable. And so I showed up, said yes, showed up in College Station. I'm going to lead this ministry. Let's go. And I remember my first week in the office, I sat down at the desk. I got the financial statements, and I looked, and there were more bills than there was money in the bank. And I looked at that and I'm like, we owe this, we have this. And I called the former director and I'm like, is this what you meant by like, I'll have to live by faith and whatnot? (laughs) And he said, no, that's historic. I'm like, what do you mean historic? And he's like, it's historically bad. Like we've never owed that much and had so little. And I remember saying that, I'm like, so I'm right to panic. He's like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, okay, I don't know, just light my hair on fire. Ah! I run around like, this is crazy, like, no. And I just realized we're in serious financial trouble. And then I thought, why did I not think to ask that when they were interviewing me? (laughs) That would have been a great question. Like, do we have any money? No. Then I'm staying in Dallas. Like, that could have been an easy conversation, like 10 minutes. Instead, I show up, buy a house, and put on my little captain's hat of the Titanic, and like, let's go. I'm like, this was a great life decision. So I remember I came to my team leaders and was like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to pray and hopefully not close the doors. And I remember we prayed. Some people gave to Breakaway. We survived. We continued to survive. But every semester, it was barely squeaking by. And we used to joke about it. We're like, it's like being on empty, pulling into a gas station every year. Because when we would hit May, we would sit around as a staff and try to decide, should we cut Breakaway gatherings at the end of the semester because we're out of money? Like, should we not meet in May? Should we not meet in April? I mean, we're talking about this kind of stuff because it was literally like pulling into a gas station on E. We just like, (coughs) we made it. Oh God. (laughs) Woo. It was just so close every year. And I remember once as a staff, it was maybe five, seven years ago, we were sitting around and I just felt like as we were leaning into the Lord of what do you have next for us? I felt like the Lord was pressing on me. I want you to, I want you to collect money from students and I'm like, we've tried that, God. Like, they don't give. Like, we've tried it. Like, if, if each of you gave a dollar, we could almost pay what it cost to meet tonight. And then it would pay, like, you know, like, not even for the AC. I'm like, Lord, it doesn't work. Like, we tried that, God. It doesn't work. But I felt like he was pressing me. Like, no, I want you to collect money for the students and give it away to the poor. And I'm embarrassed to say this to you, but as God was first pressing that on me, I was like, um, uh, no, God, because, like, we're the ministry, People are supposed to give to us. Like, we're not supposed to give to other people. Like, God, that's not how it works. Like, we're the ministry. People give money to us. Like, we don't give it away to poor people. We are the poor people. I'm like, come on, God. And I just felt like he was really pressing that on me. Like, are you going to trust me or not? Are you going to be generous or not? And we came to our students, and we put in front of them this cause of people in our community that needed beds. People coming out of prison that some people were going to mentor, disciple, they needed beds. Some women in a shelter, in a home, that needed beds. Some children born in a crisis pregnancy needed cribs. And so we decided, okay, we're going to provide beds. And I looked at our like 5,000 students and asked them for like $10,000. And they did it. They did it. And it was so powerful and so meaningful for us. We're like, we're going to keep trying this. And every semester we kept trying it. And this year, uh, this last one, I mean, we put in front of them 
refugees fleeing Iraq because of terrorism, Christians being fleeing from their homes, and like they have nothing. They're grabbing their kids and running, and like we got to try to provide for them. So we found some organizations helping those people. So we got to come around that, and we gave them a goal of I don't remember what it was. It's like one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and they raised uh, two hundred fifty thousand. Crazy, the impact that has. Crazy the impact it had on the cynicism of professors at A&M to see students do that. Crazy the legitimizing of the message of Jesus it does when they see people put their money where their mouth is. Unbelievable. But that's not even the story I want to tell you. We're giving that money away. And you know what's weird? Once we started doing that, more people started giving to Breakaway. Like not just giving to the Shalom Project, like giving to breakaway. And it wasn't because I was necessarily getting better at asking for funds. I didn't get better at it. I didn't really do it that much. I didn't like doing it. I was awkward at it. I'm not good at it. I don't think it's wrong to ask, but I'm just not good at it. I mean, I've had people put me in rooms with people that they brought expecting to give. I'm supposed to ask them to give and they're going to give. And I couldn't, I would be like, um, so trust Jesus, my guys. I was like, I just can't, I'm not good at the ask. I don't want to, ah, I can't do it. But people just started giving us money. They're like, here, just, just take it. And people started giving to Breakaway. And I'm going to tell you something over the last few years, our budget has increased more, more than 10 times what it was more than 10 times what it was. And what that's done is it's allowed us to do things we were never able to do. We were able to grow our staff, which for years was a staff of two, then three. Now we're able to add a few more. It allowed us to do breakaway in the middle of Texas A&M, out in a field, right in the dead center of campus, and we had over 13,000 students come hear the gospel. Majority of Aggies don't go to church, don't know the gospel, 70,000 kids in that town. And yet right there in the middle of campus, we had over 13,000 gathered hearing the message of Jesus. Many of them didn't even know what breakaway was, but they're hearing the gospel. And you go, that wouldn't have been possible without the generosity of these kids. That wouldn't have been possible without the faith to believe that if I choose to live with generosity, if I live by God's priorities, he promises to provide for me. He does. And what was exhibit A to the Philippians? I'll just close with the passage I read at the beginning. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. They were asking Paul, let us get in the game and change the world. Why? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. When they thought of their king, who had the riches of heaven, and voluntarily took on poverty, so we could be rich in faith. They said, we want to live with our king by his priorities, and we will take on financial challenges to serve the poor. Why? Because we want to follow our king, earnestly begging for the favor, the opportunity to be a part of building his kingdom so that when the world ends, they can say, I had a part in that. I had a stake in that. I was a world changer because I believed in the priorities of my king and I rested in the provisions of my king. And oh, what the world could be if the people of God rose up and say, let me show you a more excellent way. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, I want to thank you that the message of Jesus Christ is one of grace. And I pray that People that were here that maybe, maybe you don't come to church that much, maybe you're not a Christian, I pray you wouldn't hear, hey, I'm supposed to give money now at the end. If you're not a Christian, before you give anything to the cause of Jesus, you need to receive the grace of Jesus. 
that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ came. Christmas is about Christ leaving the riches of heaven and entering our poverty, our spiritual poverty, to make us alive and rich in the knowledge of God and relationship with God. And so to be a Christian, to be at peace with the Christ, to be in the kingdom of our King, it's a receiving of the free gift of forgiveness, not earning, not giving a thing. But then God, for those of us who have pledged our allegiance to that King, may we live like you. And I pray Christmas would show us that, your voluntary embracing of inconvenience for our sake. I pray we would join you in that kind of life that our mission would be like yours, that we would be generous people, that the world would look different because we were here, that we could look up and say the globe is better, fear is melting, cynicism melting because we chose and dared to believe the promises of our King and found that they're gloriously true. God, may we live by your priorities, trusting in your provision, believing you're gonna provide in amazing ways and may the world be in awe of the people of God, living the priorities of God. For your glory, Lord, and their good, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group Director, and I'm here with Ben Stewart, Bible Teacher. And this week, we took a second look at things that are affecting just our culture and our climate. And last week, we looked at technology. This right. week, we looked at money. Right. Welcome back. Yeah, yes, I love this. Yeah, um, just the way that you're bringing in different parts of our culture and how, as Christians, do we respond to the different issues and climates and things that affect us. Yeah. Um, looking at money, we talked a lot about generosity. Um, and so we did have a question come around Great. around some of the things you said about that. And one of the questions that, uh, that you said was, you said, where there's generosity, God will provide, um, encouraging us to be generosity and face our fear of right. provision. Yeah. Uh, this is asking in the context of where people are dying from lack of food and water. Water. In other words, if you were to give, if they were to give, would God provide food and water? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the calls to be a generous person in the Bible aren't dependent on when your income level passes a certain threshold. I mean, that was the passage I read in the beginning, 2 Corinthians 8. It says, they were in affliction and extreme poverty. So he was like, that was their situation. Affliction, extreme poverty. But they had an overwhelming joy. Because they know, I follow a king that became poor to make me rich. And he said, so they gave in accordance with their means, is what Paul says. He's like, they, they didn't have a lot. He's like, you're looking at the Philippians, they weren't going to meet the financial need we had. They don't have that much. But, um, but they did it. They lived a generous life. And, and the Bible is always pushing that forward, is that we're meant to be people that care about other people. And if you look at societies that think that way, I'm going to care about the people around me, those societies tend to win. It's selfishness when we all silo off and protect ourselves, and let me build my little kingdom, and I don't care what happens in yours. Those cultures tend to lose. And so it's interesting to get a situation like that where you go, well, what if someone only has one piece of bread and they give it away? They're going to die, right? They don't have any bread. You're like, well, I can't play hypothetical scenarios. What I can say is that the Bible calls us to be generous no matter what happens. 
I mean, Paul will tell Thessalonians, he'll praise them. You joyfully visited the Christians in prison mm -hmm. and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. So just keep in mind who he's talking to. It was people that were under severe persecution. They said, if we align ourselves with Christians, we lose everything. And they said, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Hmm. Like that's the Christian. It says, I so believe in the kingdom God's building. I'll risk everything for it. And I know that when we all think that way, we're all going to win. And so how does all that work out, the mechanics of it? I don't know. And I'm not being super mystical of God will just make bread appear, but he does that. He did that with the widow of Zarephath. He, he does it all the time. God says, I want to dare you to believe I'm real. Hmm. And uh, so uh, I think if Christians gave, I don't think there would be any of those hungry people, quite honestly. Yeah, so, we saw a so lot of I that question in, the premise. Yeah. In, in what you were looking at and yeah. looking at the resources that we yeah, have that and what the world needs. Of bread yes. if you'd give, yeah. So, <laughs> Good. You know, I don't know. Good. But. Um, okay, so you did mention there were several things that you just couldn't, didn't have time to get into the yeah. particulars about so many things. So right. there was a question that came around. Um, does the Bible give us any guidelines for tithing? What does that look like? Yeah, the, the tithe is a long conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to unpack all of it. You know, I mean, you do see like Abraham in the Old Testament. Before there's a law, like before Moses got the law, Abraham was giving 10% of his... Uh, treasure after a successful battle to the priest of God. And then in the Old Testament, there's a, you would give a certain 10% to certain parts of the worship of God. But if you take the whole law, by the end of it, they were providing for the poor, the widow, the stranger, the Levite. You go, they were giving more than 10% in the Old Testament. So we don't have an exact percentage. Some people say it's 25, 30% of their income. God was constantly pressing them, live a generous life and I will take care of you. And uh, so that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's pushing you to do the same. So should you give 10%? Yeah, I think Jesus talked about the religious people doing that. And he's like, and, uh, and uh, praying, he's like, you should have done both, not neglected the former. So I, uh, for me, I think generosity is not a number, it's a pursuit. And so for Donna and I, we decided early on, we want not just the dollar amount to keep going up, but the percentage of income to go up. And, and that's a different kind of thinking of when I die, do I want to say I had my comfortable kingdom or do I want to say I leveraged out to build yours? And for Jesus, he said, I'm not going to own a home, close, and then I'm going to get murdered for this cause. No one's going to give more than I did. And his disciples gave the same way. So I do think there should be a bend towards generosity in us. Does he demand we don't provide for our families? No, we can. And there's a place to enjoy life. There really is. And so you don't want to minimize that. But there's a mentality of, I am building a different kingdom. And so I won't store up for mine. And uh, so for me, that's where 10% in my mind is a great place to start. That's good. Um, and talking about starting, one of the questions we had come in is, um, you mentioned a lot of places people can give. Um, how do we determine where we start giving? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, <clears throat> you know, when I came around finances early in my life, you're like, okay, I want to give, save, and spend. Those are the three I want to do. And I want to do it in that order. I want to give to the cause of Jesus in the world. I want to save to provide for my family mm -hmm. and then spend to live the day-to-day -day life we live now. And, um, for Donna and I, we struggled through the percentages on these. And early on we thought in giving, 
let's start with where we are. We're a part of a church community in our town. You've joined a body of believers that are trying to push back the darkness, be a difference in the kingdom of God in your neighborhood. Fund that. Those are your people. And so for us, we just decided our 10% is going to go to our local church. I think your local church is where you start. You go, these are the people I've linked arms with and said, we're the people of God in this neighborhood, in this place. And that's where I would start. And some people do all their giving to their local church. And that's great because then maybe their church gives to other places. Right, if you have a church that's real missional. So many places. Yeah. Then you go, okay, mm-hmm. I trust y'all. Like if you trust the leadership of your church, you go, did I went in on that? It's like investing in stock. You're like, I trust that guy. Just invest for me. You go, I didn't trust this church. I'm going to invest in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I trust the leadership of the church to, to steward that. Other places, like for us, we go, we're going to give this percentage to our church. And then we have these missionaries we want to support. We have these causes we want to come around. And then every year crises come up and we want to come at those and go, how are we going to be a part of solving that? And so um, I think you start in the house you're in. Uh, and then you pray and see what God may have you do. And it may surprise you. I, I know some guys that some of the best, most generous people I know, they sit down every year and they really seek the Lord. Where would you have us give? And that's like a big priority. And I go, man, so many people don't even ask that question. And they've landed in different places, translating the Bible, serving refugees. Who knows where God may lead you, but start at home and then see what God puts on your heart. Great. Yeah. Great word. Great to have you back again. Thanks. Looks like fine. we're wrapping up the year with you. Yeah, this yes, is it. This, this is, is it. it. So, so I just you, wanted to challenge you're people gonna have and then a... head out. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for both of these Advent messages and many blessings for the Stewart family for you guys to have well, magical Christmas with the little ones thanks. and yeah. everything that's happening Merry with Christmas you guys. To you guys. We, thank you. And thank you for joining us here at Postscript. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.